Please stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Well, good morning there, beloved. Welcome today to Bible Study Time here with Rick Ponson Ministries. I'm Gene Thomas. I'm glad to see you this morning. Uh, if I could see you, it would be better, but I can't. So we're going to do Bible study right here on the book of Hebrews a little bit today. We'll continue our study of that. And I'm just uh, delighted to read from it and discuss it a little bit from my perspective. And you can understand that Hebrews is a complicated text. It can speak many things to many people. By the power of the Spirit of the Lord. Boy, if you read Hebrews one time, you'll get one thing and go back there again, and sometimes you'll get absolutely another because the Lord definitely speaks through these, these beautiful texts. I'm going to read um, Hebrews chapter 2, which we're going to look at this morning, and then when I get through reading that, I make a few remarks on it uh, from the way I see it, and then we'll uh, uh, sign off. So here we go with Hebrews chapter 2. So we must listen very carefully to the truths we have heard, or we may drift away from them. For since the messages from angels have always proved true, and people have always been punished for disobeying them, what makes us think that we can escape if we are indifferent to this Great salvation announced by the Lord Jesus himself and passed on to us by those who heard him speak. God always has shown us that these messages are true by signs and wonders and various miracles and by giving certain special abilities from the Holy Spirit to those who believe. <clears throat> Yet, God has assigned such gifts to each of us. And the future world we are talking about will not be controlled by angels. No, for in the book of Psalms, David says to God, what is mere man that you are so concerned about him. And who is this son of man you honor so highly? For though you made him lower than the angels for a little while, now you have crowned him with glory and honor. And you've put him in complete charge of everything there is. Nothing is left out. We have not yet seen all of this take place. But we do see Jesus, who for a while was a little lower than the angels, crowned now by God with glory and honor <coughs> because he suffered death for us. 
Yes, because of God's great kindness, Jesus tasted death for everyone in the world. And it was right and proper that God, who made everything for his own glory, should allow Jesus to suffer. For in doing this, he was bringing vast multitudes of God's people to heaven. For his suffering made Jesus a perfect leader, one fit to bring them into their salvation. We who have been made holy by Jesus now have the same Father he has. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers. For he says in the book of Psalms, I will talk to my brothers about God my Father, and together we will sing his praises. And at another time he said, I will put my trust in God along with my brothers. And it's still another time. See, here am I and the children God gave me. Since we, God's children, are human beings made of flesh and blood, he became flesh and blood by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die and in dying break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in that way could he deliver those who through fear of death have been living all their lives as slaves to constant dread. We all know he did not come as an angel, but as a human being, yes, and a Jew. It was necessary for Jesus to be like us, his brothers, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God, a priest who would be both merciful to us, faithful to God, in dealing with the sins of his people. For since he himself has now been through suffering and temptation, he knows what it is like when we suffer and are tempted. He is wonderfully able to help us. And therein's a reading for 
our consideration today. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful study in how it is that Jesus is the center of somebody's theology. See, sometimes we don't mean to, but we don't have what's called an, an even an identifiable Christology. That is, what it is that you believe about the Christ. What is the Christ to you? This second chapter dives deeper into those murky waters, because they are murky. People have different Christologies down through the ages. The church began its great councils considering Jesus. What was Jesus' place in theology now? Did he have a place? And the answer to that is yes. And students of the Bible in seminaries are almost all taught a class or the subject of what's called systematics. Every theology has to have a system in which there are certain things present to be necessarily Christian. One of those things is a Christology. So a student would write a paper on various sections of different systems, such as the system of Christology, system of soteriology for salvation and you need to be able to have one on 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 different parts scripture and so so they all link together and form this system well you can have a christology in your system that is high or low a low christology sees jesus maybe as a great teacher but not very very, very firm on salvation and how, how it's connected. It, they may have a real high, Christo, so high a Christology that the human side of him sort of disappears and he becomes divine and glorious and floats three feet above the ground with a high Christology, real high. We are in high Christological territory here this morning. It's like Colossians is in high Christological territory. The Gospel of John is like that. So we are on a stream of, of theological inquiry through Hebrews talking about Jesus. The first half of the text, uh, I say half of the verses, one through four, and, and it talks about Jesus as giving warnings. And then the second part of it is describes the work of Jesus in human beings. First, the warning, then the work. That's what we're going to, that's how we're going to jump across this. We're going to start with the warnings Jesus about Jesus here and then come over and skip into the uh, the uh, work of Jesus because they both are functions 
Now, the first thing I want to talk about is the teachings about drifting away. Very first chapter. I want to look at the. I want to look at the first verse of the second chapter and the last verse of the second chapter. Kind of make a sandwich out of it. The first verse is so we must listen very carefully to the truths we've heard. So somebody has given them the truth, and they've accepted that truth, or we may drift away from them drifting this is a time when there's people have have perhaps believed but have put it into action they seem to be able to hear you all right but not react on it i mean i've, I've, I've been in churches before where i've preached and there were many people who heard me, but only a very few people who heard me well enough to react to it. No offense, but it's just, I mean, I suffer from the same thing. Sometimes I can listen to something and hear it all right, but with my hearing aids on, that is at least, hear it, but then don't necessarily react to it. But this, this writer wants us to stop drifting. Stop drifting. Drifting is a dangerous thing. Um, drifting will get you killed on the water. If you don't know where you are and you have no power, you can't get out of the way of anything. Uh, you drift along oblivious to reality. The teaching life of Jesus is important to this writer. Jesus lived, taught, and he quotes at the end of it, he quotes these psalmists over and over and over about how Jesus is our brother, see, uh, down, down to the nitty-gritty of the lives we live. We have a big brother. And we don't need to drift away from that. If we drift away from that fundamental, we're going to be, we're going to be in trouble. There are references in here about those who uh, had heard him, who, who, who that they heard them declare that Jesus was Lord. So this was a message that had been given to them. Having received it, now they were going to, they hadn't been reacting to it. So here comes this letter, this, this, this book, to give them some help to stop this drifting. Because drifting, we tend to think of it in a spatial sense, uh, like on the water or, or just drifting along. But the truth is, drifting is a spiritual matter. You, you, you start to drift, you know. Uh, the great old Methodist preachers used to come to your door and they paid what was called a pastoral visit. It didn't have anything to do with they're being friends of yours or that they would be, you know, happy to have a piece of pie. They didn't come for that. They would come right in and begin to ask questions that were personal to you. They'd want to say, how you doing? It didn't mean, you know, lie about it and dream up something. They wanted to know how you were spiritually. How are you with the Lord? Not, you know, did you get a raise last week? But what are you, what is the Lord doing for you? 
And they would always say, well, where's your Bible? Let me see your Bible. And people would scramble around trying to dig it out of wherever they'd last forgotten it, you know. Maybe it was a big thing on a coffee table. Whatever it was, they'd scrounge around and find it and present it to the preacher to prove to the preacher that they were not drifting. Because that preacher was looking for evidence of a holy life. Did you go to church last week? I noticed you weren't here last week. I brought you a bulletin so you know what's going on. You do care what's going on, don't you? According to the roles you remember, am I right or wrong, right? Well, you haven't been there in six months. What's the matter? I thought somebody was, was sick. See, the line of questioning, the line of that has warning behind it, there's, there's danger in drifting like that. So Jesus, if you think about Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, we, we, we really don't emphasize that anymore much. I mean, I don't. I, don't, I think I don't look for evidence of Jesus doing something. I know I'm a guide at the National Cathedral. I take people through sometimes and I point out the wonderful, majestic work done here in art and how marvelous it is and how wonderful it is. And then a voice whispers to me that time Jesus, you know, pointed to the temple. You know what Jesus said? He said, not one stone here that will not be turned down, torn down. I think about that. I don't tell people that at all, but I, I think about it. I say, you know, this is a beautiful place, but the Lord one someday is going to tear the thing down because things are like that. Things are just that way. I mean, we don't need to go gaga over this world or anything in it. We need to think about Jesus and what Jesus would have us do. Now, see, what happens is we don't want to preach that on Sunday. That, that's not very encouraging to people. <laughs> Look at the walls of this church. One day they're going to collapse on you. That's, that's not a popular theme. It won't be this Sunday or next Sunday. But the warnings of Jesus through the gospel are significant. So we have these warnings at the opening of this second chapter. Finally, also, we have a word here on the work of Jesus. What is Jesus' work? And then for that, I'm going to read the very last verse of the second chapter, looking, I think, to verse 18. For since he himself has now been through suffering and temptation, he knows what it is like when we suffer and are tempted. And he is wonderfully able to help us. So now Jesus slips from a role of a, a wandering, drifting teacher. Oh, by the way, you remember the Western used to always talk about a high plains drifter or a drifter. A drifter was almost romantic. J Jesus is, is to many people just a romantic drifter <laughs> going through Palestine and all. But this text makes him into a high priest because this letter is to Jewish Christians who think with a Jewish mindset. And the high priest is special in Israel. They don't have one now because the temple's torn down, but he used to have a high priest. And that, that, that thing was dressed appropriately a certain way. There's certain things he couldn't do. 
if you're interested in this subject, you go back to Leviticus and look around chapter 20, I think it is through there. Find out what the duties of a high priest are. They're startlings and they are stark. And this is where Jesus takes the place of high priest. He says he goes suffer just like we suffer and are tempted just like we are tempted. Suffering there is the word pasco, like passion. Jesus has a thing for suffering. He don't look at it the same way we do. We see suffering as hospital and pain and x-rays. You know, He sees it in a different light. He sees it as love. And just, just plain love for you, you see. And he suffers because he loves you so much. It's hard to imagine a, a Lord loving somebody like enough to die for him, but to be punished and to be tempted. Temptation there, that word, that word in the Greek means to be perforated, punch holes in you. Uh, so so he, he's tempted. We are tempted a lot of times and get blown up like a balloon. And then reality comes along and punches holes in it. And what happens? The balloon goes and crashes. Such is temptation. Jesus was tempted just like we are tempted. You remember the cry of derelict on the cross? He was on the cross. He cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You think he was just playing games up there? No. My Lord, my Lord, he said, why have you forsaken me? Reading that psalm out of his mind, you know, just out of his mind in pain. Oh, my Lord. Well, that is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That is Jesus, you see. Wonderful Jesus, liberator. He's the great liberator in, in, in the Bible. He's the great teacher. The great leader. Great leader. I said a word about drifting. I, I want to just close with a, 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 a word about that again. Sometimes spiritual drifting is not a bad thing. Now, I, I say that from my own perspective. Uh, drifting means sometimes it can mean you're drifting away from something. But then again, you can be drifting towards something. Sometimes I think of the, the mission trips that I've been on as pilgrimages. And you get into that mind where you, you begin to spiritually drift somewhere and you learn something new, a new way of spirituality, a new way of thinking. And the old Christians back, back, back in the olden days, they used to understand this concept that if you get spiritually drifting, what you do to counter that is you physically go somewhere to do something for the Lord. You got me now? Go somewhere to do something for the Lord. And the, the travel becomes more important than the destination. So <laughs> what happens is the wonderful story of traveling from one place to another. And by the way, the Gospels are loaded with it. Baby Jesus was carried all the way from, from Nazareth to Egypt and back again and all over creation because this, 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 this desire to, to sort of spiritually drift and wander it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. This context warns us about being lazy. So, as we get into Hebrews, we're going to learn from it. 
I, I want you to, to read this, have this chapter in the book again after we get through and maybe get a little deeper into it than I was able to. And it, as we meet again, perhaps we'll look at the third chapter together. But in any regard, it's always a joy to be with you and to talk about the Bible and what God does. And from my perspective, and I hope you enjoyed yourself this morning, and I'm looking forward to seeing you again real soon. So take care of yourself, and God bless you today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen. Cresce em beleza, força e luz Rosa de Sharon